Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. A big thank you to those of you who have given us some pretty fantastic reviews and five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and on other sites in the last couple weeks. They really help new people find the show. Please keep them coming. Also, please tell a friend. The old-fashioned way works even better. I'm pretty thrilled to welcome back to the show this week, Mark Dion. This weekend, the Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth opens The Perilous Texas Adventures of Mark Dion. For the exhibition, Dion retraced the steps of four 19th century Texas explorers, Sarah Ann Lily Hardinge, Charles Wright, John James Audubon, and Frederick Law Olmsted, accumulating material and experiences all along. The Carter exhibition features both Dion's discoveries and related works from its collection. Curated by Margaret Adler, it will remain on view through May 17th. The Eamon Carter has published an extraordinary book in association with the project. In some ways, it's an adaptation of, and Dion and Company's updating, of Olmsted's Texas Travel Diary. It's published by the Eamon Carter and distributed by Yale University Press. It's hilarious, smart, handsome, funny. Amazon offers it for $40. Dion works at the intersection of art, natural history, history, and anthropology. His work examines, and often critiques, humanity's approach to nature, landscape, and science through witty address of scientific methodologies and installations that often have roots in Victorian-era presentation. He has fulfilled commissions and had exhibitions at museums all over the world, including the Museum of Modern Art, the Tate, and the British Museum of Natural History in London. He's also a co-director of Mildred's Lane, a visual art education and residency program in Beach Lake, Pennsylvania. On the second segment, Nancy Lupo at the Museum of Contemporary Art, San Diego. But first, Mark Dion, after the break. Testing the very definition of portraiture, Sheldon Museum of Art explores nuances in the genre from the late 19th century to today. Person of Interest, on view from January 24th through July 5th, 2020, asks open-ended questions about self-fashioning, cultural memory, and performance of identity. In doing so, the exhibition prompts conversations about race and representation, institutional power, lived experience, and other relevant and timely issues. Person of Interest features works by artists ranging from John Singer Sargent, Robert Henri, and Marisol to Radcliffe Bailey, Nathaniel Mary Quinn, and Renee Stout. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents two major surveys during the spring 2020 season, featuring Paul McCarthy and Tishan Sue. On view through May 10th, Paul McCarthy Headspace, Drawings, 1963-2019, to is the first comprehensive survey in the United States of drawings and works on paper by the Los Angeles-based artist. With 600 works on paper, spanning more than five decades, the exhibition reveals a rarely examined aspect of McCarthy's oeuvre. And on view through April 19th, Tishan Sue Liquid Circuit is the New York-based artist's first museum survey in the United States. Bringing together roughly 30 sculptures, drawings, and media work from 1980 to 2005, the exhibition reintroduces the work of a visionary artist who considered the implications of the accelerated use of technology and its impact on the body and human condition. Paul McCarthy Headspace Drawings and Tishan Sue Liquid Circuit are on view now at The Hammer. Find details at hammer.ucla.edu. This winter, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a world premiere work by Sadie Benning. 
In Pain Thing, their rumination on responses to trauma and collective experience, plays out across 63 mixed-media panels. Also at the WEX, LaToya Ruby Frazier presents The Last Cruise, her critically acclaimed examination of the lives of GM workers in Lordstown, Ohio, after their plant was shuttered. And Stanya Khan completes the season with No Go Backs, a world premiere short film that follows two teens as they leave behind an endangered society. The exhibitions are on view through April 26th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Mark Dion, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's marvelous to be back. We got to start with the cover of the catalog slash book that accompanies the show because it's extraordinary. It's, it's, it's green and gold and they're shining out of the middle of the cover surrounded by a scorpion and a deadly spider is your shining cowboy hatted mug. How did you come to be on the cover of the book and how do you feel about, about your celebrity turn as it were? Yeah. You know, when the book first came to me and I saw the cover and I opened it up and saw perhaps more images of myself in the book than any other catalog or book that I've done. And and I've done a fair amount. I I just had to put it down. I I had to put it down and like leave it alone for a few days. You know, I've always been very conscious of the power of the artist's image in a way. And something early on I realized, you know, as a young artist was the way that people would take images of of the artists I was interested in, people like Boyce and Smithson, and would sort of privilege these images of them in the process. And and in my early work, I thought very much about that as being a powerful thing, that as being something that you could actually play with and take advantage of, you know, because I was very interested in this idea of, of taking on different roles in some way challenging mastery by changing those roles so making it very clear that in a sense that that i my character was very much like flaubert's characters of of bovard and pecochet you know i was working my way through intellectual traditions in a way that no one could possibly do but they failed and you succeeded yeah well no i failed too but i want that failure to be you know to me that failure is the critique of mastery right Clearly, no one can be an ichthyologist and a watercolorist and a botanist and a, and an art conservator. You know, that um, I take on these roles, which are always punching above my weight. And then early on, there was a very performative aspect where, where the viewers could kind of see me trying my best, but often failing at mastering these disciplines. So I kind of understand the power of presenting the artist. But in this sense, because I, you know, I didn't design the catalog and although I had my uh, approval of it, you know, I, I think the, the weight of myself, which is always myself as the person and my sort of artist persona really do come a little bit uncomfortably close for me in this catalog and in a kind of interesting way. Oh yeah. It's not just interesting. It's the most smart plus entertaining catalog I've read in a while, if only for the picture of you shopping for cowboy hats. Yeah, me shopping for cowboy hats, waiting in line to use the ATM because I don't know how to drive and I have to stand behind the cars. I have to stand in the middle of a line of cars. You know, so again, I I want to, um, you know, because the 
exhibition itself is really focused on the model of the artist traveler, the sort of artist explorer, I also want to, in some way, take that grand narrative of triumph and domination and turn it on its head. As often, I, I, you know, I sort of use somewhat comic failure as a way of doing that, in a sense, in the, in the same way that I kind of slip in and out of these characters. And so I, I think the book does that very well. On the other hand, you know, there's lots of journal excerpts that are really my journal and are not written in an, in an ironic way. I mean, they are very sincere accounts at the end of the day. Well, let's let's pivot from from the book as object and and crack and good read. Speaking of the book, one last note of praise: the tone that curator Maggie Adler takes throughout it is. I mean, I just kept laughing laughing out loud over over and over again. I mean, it's just pitch perfect. So the 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 broader project, as I mentioned in in, in the show intro, is that you are engaging with travels across Texas made by four people: naturalist Charles Wright naturalist, illustrator, artist, John James Audubon, ubiquitous polymath, Frederick Law Olmsted, <laughs> and Sarah Ann Hardinge, the least known of the four, the least well-known of the, of, 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 of the four people who, who traveled across Texas in pursuit of land. She was, I don't know if promised is quite, 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 the, quite the word promised or, or that her family had earned through service in the U.S. military. So before we get to those four and how you engaged with each of them, the project and indeed the introductory essay of the catalog position you and the entire project as a kind of uh, modern day address of both the mid 19th century tradition of American exploration. So think of boundary surveys or railroad cume scientific surveys and surveys that were even more pointedly part of the American imperial project, um, such as those that combed Western Mexico for mountain passes through which American armies might be able to travel. What about remaking or engaging the early to mid-19th century explorer tradition particularly drew you to it? Well, you know, one aspect, of course, is that is the hosting institution is the Ammon Carter, right? So the Ammon Carter is a kind of interesting place that really starts as a, a cowboy museum founded by a real American patriarch, in a sense, and then it's better well-rounded by his daughter who takes over and really turns it into a sort of legitimate museum of American art, which does have a sort of focus on the frontier. It's interesting to me, like how many frontier and pioneer art museums there are in America. And, uh, you know, it seems like the, the, as the frontier does get pushed, these museums all sort of claim to be the frontier museum. You know, and, and I think that Maggie is, Maggie Adler, who was my curator and and very much a collaborator on this project in many ways you know I, I think she's really interested in finding new ways to think about this collection for the for the public i mean I, scholars have thought about these images and these characters and these deeds very differently for a long time right but i i think that isn't necessarily translated in the way that these collections have been displayed. That kind of critical perspective, the perspective that sees Manifest Destiny as, as one of the most pernicious ideas in the Western tradition. And that also, in some way, we're interested in undercutting the narrative of machismo and certainty and destiny that is inherent in this frontier discourse, right? So how can we 
in some way use contemporary practice, contemporary critical practice, and tactics like like humor to in some way erode that pernicious ideology that that these museums kind of embody. I mean, I think that brings up one of the most interesting aspects of the show, because the era of exploration and empire, uh, to coin a phrase from a famous book title, that period of the traveling scientist or artist or journalist or land seeker, sometimes many of those things at one time, was, you know, was America's imperial period or most imperial period. Each of the four figures whose travels you not reenact, but at least revisit, were absolutely participants in the imperial project. How, as you approached this project and then as you did it, did you address that history, especially around uh, displacement and dispossession? Well, I think, you know, approaching it with a certain amount of humility, right, is, is step number one. The notion was, when we were conceiving of the exhibition, was that let's look at a, a group of Yankees who came here with their own preconceptions and remarkable prejudices, and also were, were put through a kind of trial, right? And and didn't have the greatest time, and in some cases had really miserable experiences. And let, let's try to rethink that, right? You know, it's not just the story of Texas's role in that imperial progress, but it's also about these sort of individuals. You know, I would say that that maybe Olmsted, in in some way, is the is the most programmatic of the participants in a way. And you have Charles Wright, who you know starts off as a, a, you know, he's making the first scientific botanical collections and sending them to Asa Gray, in Harvard. So in some way, in the same way that that a lot of British traveling naturalists are not necessarily the most egregious of the colonial endeavor actors, but they are very much parallel to to those actors. Charles Wright is is very much that, and later. He goes on to create the border, you know, to be participate in the border survey. The interesting figure maybe is Sarah Ann Hardage, who comes here to deal in some land that she may or may not have. We really haven't been able to untangle whether she was swindled or not, and whether that, you know, the map that we have that was her map that's on display, the people in the land survey here and Texas say that they've never seen such a map and that the map is actually printed uh, and not a blueprint and not a drawing. And so maybe this is part of a, a kind of swindle that was going on. Uh, and many people were sold this map. But her experience, you know, is is a really interesting one because she's not doing it with the same consciousness of an audience in the way that Audubon is, because he's working on North American mammals when he's here. So he's already done birds and knows what the effect of that is. Uh, Olmsted, of course, is writing back for the New York Times, and write is part of a larger institutional investment and later a government process. So Sarah Ann is is just this, you know, is a sort of civilian in an interesting way, and her writing kind of reflects a much more personal experience. And the watercolors that she produced are, you know, where I don't think it was ever imagined that they would have a, as broad of a viewership as they're going to have in this exhibition. So they're very intimate and they're very domestic. And Just real, real quickly, what do those watercolors show? Some of them show 
places that would be important, like a ford across a river where there might be a, a, a ferry. A lot of them show homes and were painted for the owners of those homes. And that was one of the ways that she supported herself. You know, she came to look for this piece of land. It wasn't easy and it didn't seem to really exist. She had several children while she was here. Her husband somewhat abandoned her and, and gambled and drank a lot of the money that they had. And she ended up having to enter the homes of the of the growing new landed class here and teach their children painting and grammar and, uh, you know, essentially kind of move in and become the tutor. And so she had to find a way to make ends meet until she made enough money to move back to Boston. In some way, her, her story, you know, is as mortifying as Charles Wright's is in terms of the tribulations he, that she experienced. But, you know, she's she's not a public figure, and I think that makes her much more interesting. And, you know, and the, and the watercolors are a kind of revelation in that way. So to backfill a couple things, the map of the alleged possible, who knows, Hardinge family land claim is in the Eamon Carter's collection, as are the watercolors we were just we were just mentioning. There are examples of all of these things in the book, and we'll have images on on manpodcast.com. Yeah, and I, you know, when Maggie brought me here, you know, the the collection of of the Sarah Ann Hardinge watercolors was something in the collection that really hasn't hasn't received the attention that maybe a lot of the other works that are here that are Texas based uh, have received. So she really wanted to find some way to get these out into public view, but at the same time, do something else, something, find another way to consider them. So that's what she brought me here to see the first time. And then we expanded the idea to include other Yankees who had traveled in Texas. So we're going to talk about um, Wright and Audubon and Olmsted in, in, in these same terms. So you've just introduced us to Hardinge. How did you engage with her journey and search and uh, survival even as part of your project? Well, you know, one of, one of the aspects of this project is to try to come as close to the places where these people were and to see what's left, right? And so... With Sarah Ann Hardage, we we know pretty extensively where she was, and she was kind of in Hill Country and Seguin and and San Antonio. So we could spend some time there, and we were able to actually locate one of the houses that is in her watercolor and a house that that has been preserved, and it was actually the furthest western plantation house in the United States at the time she was staying there, and in some way this painting she made. Even though her paintings are very, you know, they're very self-schooled, they're they're very, you know, they're, they feel like someone who's really learning to paint. And her later paintings, I think, we, we see that this is the stage that the Texas paintings are made in, because the, the later ones are much more accomplished. But, you know, that that painting kind of puts this house on the map, in a sense. So we're able to visit the house, which is which is currently being restored. So, you know, I've always been really interested in this idea of reenactment and restoration and how you know as a society we're not always forward thinking we're often think we're offered often looking backward looking at that history and trying to really tease out 
what is it that makes people want to reenact events? What is it that makes people want to restore homes to one particular period or another? You know, I, I think that I'm trying to engage with that past in a way that's not nostalgic, right? In a way that nostalgia is not my motivation for thinking about these things. I, I'm interested in thinking about this, you know, from a kind of critical social history perspective. So it is important to try and for me to to kind of imagine during some of these travels that I can actually be in a spot where Sarah Ann Hartage was or where Olmsted was. I can look at Galveston Bay and compare that to what Audubon writes about Galveston Bay, which, you know, at the time Audubon's writing, he's even even him, someone who's who has seen a lot, is awed by the by the kind of uh, diversity of life and the uh, enormous bird life in Galveston Bay. The house you're referencing is called the Polly Mansion. Where there are pictures in the book. We'll try to get one or two of them for manpodcast.com. One of the pictures in the book shows a table in a room in the mansion that makes a nice rhyme for the style of display you engage with in, in your work. So that's Hardinge. Charles Wright. Charles Wright was a, a naturalist, a specimen collector. He, he acquired botanical samples across the North American continent and indeed in the Caribbean too, often returning them, sending them to Asa Gray at Harvard, who was the father of American botanical taxonomy, a guy who in many ways is, is the father of American science. Those of us who've written on the 19th century, he's one of those guys you just bump into all the time. Yeah, he's, he's a really important figure in that, in that story. Franklin Kelly, the curator and deputy director at the National Gallery, has a line about the 19th century and the interests of artists and their engagement with people like Wright that I think of a lot. Kelly writes that the investigation of the complex relationships between man and the natural world dominated the cultural life of the mid-19th century in a way perhaps unmatched by any other single concern. And we see that in his, and indeed your now, botanizing in West Texas. Key to Wright's project and to Gray's project was, was intense botanical and sometimes geologic specificity, which is not necessary in the same way today, perhaps. So how did you engage Wright's botanizing and sample collecting, given that you didn't need to redo exactly, of course, what he did 170 years ago. You know, I did travel with two scientists from Brit here. And so two people who are dedicated Texas botanical scientists who work in herbarium and and were extremely excited to collect in West Texas because they haven't really collected in West Texas before. We are, we are talking about extreme West Texas here, out by Guadalupe Mountains. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so, you know, for them it's really exciting and 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 fresh to be able to do that. And at the same time, you know, we didn't get the proper permits at, at the right moment. So we're also collecting on the side of the road. So you know, one aspect of Wright's endeavor is that it's complicated by the realities of his moment, right? He's having a very hard time traveling around. He doesn't have a horse at first, and he walks hundreds and hundreds of miles on his own. He needs, you know, when you're collecting specimens, it's a lot of stuff you have to carry with you. It's plant presses, it's paper, and if you're making a massive collection, all of that stuff has to be kept dry, and it has to be kept in the right conditions. He's relying very much on the traveling military who are engaged in, uh, you know, exterminating native people 
and they have very little concern and regard for him and his and what he's doing. He's he's absolutely dependent on their goodwill and often finds that they've taken his specimens and put them in conditions that completely ruin them, sometimes ruining months and months of work. So, you know, what what are our conditions now? So one of the sites that we looked at is one of the sites that that where there was a small trading post right on the border, right on the Texas side of the Rio Grande, uh, which now is a juncture of a, a vacant lot and a CVS and a Walmart. So we went to that site and, and collected there. And, you know, for the botanist, there was a surprising amount of exciting material. You know, in, in all of these places where I'm traveling, I have local hosts, right, who are helping me to see the landscape and interpret my surroundings in a way that I could never do as an outsider. And, and let me just jump in to point out that that's true to the way Olmsted traveled and indeed is part of your address of Olmsted. Yeah, in, 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 a, in a way. But he is, he always is acting from a perspective of authority, right? Even though there are people that he asks, he, you know, he asks people for help. He stays in people's homes. But he always sort of comes off as the person who knows more than they do, right? So when I'm traveling with, you know, my friend Gabe Martinez in, in Houston, or with Eric Snell in, in Galveston, there's no way I know more than them. Not about this, not about where they're living, not about their situation, not about anything. So I'm trying to have a very different perspective. When uh, when I'm traveling with uh, the Comanche poet and artist Juanita Petaponi, you know, I am, you know, I'm all ears. I'm just really interested in listening to her and learning from her and understanding the very different way she sees Comanche and European history clashing and the narratives that she tells, and she's a, a professional storyteller, are remarkably different from any narratives I've read. And, and the way that she sees the land and the way she talks about her people seeing the land is very different from the way Charles Wright or Olmsted see it. And so I'm trying not, you know, I'm trying to put my own my own judgments in the in the back you know i'm trying to be a very different kind of traveler than some of these other people were i think that's that's one aspect of what i'm what i'm doing in this process her name is juanita padaponi her work is in the catalog is it in the show it's not in the show but it's in the catalog it's in the catalog we'll try to get images you know you mentioned this uncertainty wright had about what he would find and the newness of these things to him and how you were surprised how that sometimes also played out for 21st century botanists. In your Olmstedian diary, there, your, your metaphor for that, if metaphor is the word I want, is your experience of a certain Texas fast food chain. Oh, yeah, the, the Whataburger, yeah. Yeah, how'd that go? It, it's <laughs> funny because, you know, when we, we were out collecting buffalo gourds, you know, which is a, is a, a large kind of sprawling plant that, crawls across the side of the road and culminates in these softball-sized gourds. And when we're sampling them, you know, taking, making a, the herbarium, we're cutting the plants and it, and the filmmaker said, oh, you know, this smells exactly like when you have Whataburger in your car. <laughs> and you leave it and you, you leave the bag overnight 
And so they kept talking about this this fast food chain, which I I kept hearing as Water Burger. I finally asked them, "What is a Water Burger?" And so everyone just shakes their head and looks at the stupid Yankee. <laughs> and then we drive into the parking lot and have our first Water Burger. So, well, what's especially great about that is throughout. Olmsted's book about Texas, he complains about the food like nobody has ever complained about anything before. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's a, 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 a strikingly forward historical connection. Of course, if you'd really wanted to be like Olmsted, you would have worn like three jackets at once at all times. Um, I, you can understand that because the temperature shift here is dramatic in the course of a day, right? I, I think if you just spend one cold night out, you know, you really would uh, have a have a great deal of difficulty ever leaving us a layer behind. Let's pivot to Audubon. There are a number of Audubons um, and lithographs after Audubon in, in, in the show. I want to raise an 1843 Bowen lithograph after Audubon's, I'm going to mess up my pronunciation here again, sorry, Rosate, Rosate? Rosate Spoonbill, yeah. Yeah, so I, I imagine you saw Rosate Spoonbills because there's a picture in the book of several dozen of them that I vaguely imagine that, that you snapped on a camera phone. When you see something in an object from 1843 and then see that species in the 2010s while working on a piece on a project, what sorts of uh, associations and relationships go through your mind as you think about how to engage with the object and the species and the times and places? Well, you know, it's interesting because the, the rosy and Spoonbill you know, for me, is an incredibly exotic bird, right? I mean, it's, it is a, a great-looking bird. It's one of the most spectacular birds that, that live in the, in the country. And, you know, in my travels in South Florida, you know, I'll occasionally run across one or two. So being in, in Galveston and, you know, crossing over to an island and finding a rookery where there are literally hundreds and hundreds of roseate spoonbills, vying for nest sites with snowy egrets and cormorants and there are alligators swimming around just waiting for the fledglings to drop into the water you know this is an extraordinary view into maybe approximating what what audubon saw you know very often when i look at audubon and other artists from the period people like catlin i think if i could only see that and if I could only have that kind of experience of the exuberance of nature before the paved road. And there are these moments in travels like this where you really feel like you've obtained that. And for me, that's, that's kind of extremely interesting. But at the same time, you know, the site that we're seeing it is not a pristine swamp. It's an island that has been made by the Audubon Society. And we're viewing these birds from perfectly built platforms constructed for the, by the Audubon Society to, uh, you know, allow this encounter with spectacular nature. So I think one of the important lessons in, in this work is that the idea of nature and the idea of wilderness are not synonymous in my, in, you know, in my practice, that I've always seen nature as something that exists sort of despite our better efforts to get rid of it. And I'm not that necessarily seduced by the notion of the of the pristine. You know, I, I want I like the idea that that one might see a roseate spoonbill in the parking lot as well. 
I think that that's very much the way I want to write about, the way I want to think about nature and the, and the kind of dynamic I want to have between that original print and my practice today. So to jump in with a couple things about that, the, the, the differentiation between nature and wilderness and indeed landscape and wilderness is very much a 19th century engagement. You know, for Emerson writing in 1836, he specifically defined landscape, a word then pretty new to the English language, even newer to American English. You know, for, for Emerson, landscape was man-impacted nature, which was different from wilderness. And that usage of the word existed in the English, in American English for decades. Today, we tend to use them all interchangeably. So I think that's, at least for me, a really important and interesting point. You talk about the island in Galveston Bay as being artificial. You, I, I presume, pointedly, intentionally, cleverly, and, and really kind of hilariously collected shells in that area and kept them in a plastic grocery tub for a product called I Can't Believe It's Not Butter. Right. <laughs> you know, so a, 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 a winking reference to the artificiality of place in terms of um, the artificiality of margarine or whatever the heck that stuff is. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think it's always complicated, right, how the artists are interpreting these things. So, so if we think about Audubon, you know, he, of, of course, is shooting these birds, right? I mean, one of the awkwardness one of the one of the reasons for the awkwardness of the placement of birds on the paper is uh, in Audubon's Birds of America, is that he is placing the actual carcass of the bird onto the paper and tracing around it to get the accuracy of scale. Right, the, in the elephant folio, all the birds are meant to fit on the page, you know, at, to scale, and so you have these very awkward moments where necks need to be contorted in particular ways so they fit the page better right but the very idea that you know we sort of um, look at Audubon and admire him as and and see him as a kind of proto-conservationist at the same time you know he is shooting all of the birds that he's depicting and and perhaps the weakest part of Birds of America are you know are sort of the behavioral descriptions you know, all, all of that, I think, is very, very different from the way people study birds today. Although, you know, the fact is that scientists still shoot birds by the hundreds when they go on collecting trips, which even though they're rare, they still happen. Yeah. And Audubon also sometimes drew animals that had already been taxidermied and where fur, fur and or feathers or whatever else had already fallen off as part of the taxidermy process or as part of you know, just them having been standing around for a while. And so sometimes his, his views are puzzlingly inaccurate as, as a result. We've mentioned Olmsted a couple times. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the major engagement with Olmsted is indeed the book. The book, the book and the itinerary, right? So, you know, I mean, I'm really interested in, in Olmsted as a sort of travel writer, right? And you know, I do think that travel literature, travel, you know, the, the sort of travelogue is one of the things that um, we do extremely well in the American genre. You know, if we go back to Lewis and Clark or William Bartram, you know, and through people like Olmsted, through Kerouac, through Pee Wee Herman, you know, there's just like a great idea of the travelogue. The idea of the of the travel genre is is exciting, but you know we don't really have much of a travel genre in sculpture. So you know that's a big part of my process is trying to imagine what it would mean to be a tra 
be a travel artist, but not a painter and not a photographer, but a sculptor, someone who works with material. That's interesting. Is that kind of descended from your interest in Smithson? Or would that go back further to the way an Italian sculptor, say like a Michelangelo, would travel to a quarry and select blocks? I think it has more to do with my sort of placement maybe with a a toe in the world of collecting and scientific collections and an entire foot and a half in the world of art and and with sort of collecting as being a, a, an important part of, of my medium and sort of my contribution to that history of of art that's not really one about assemblage, right? It's not about taking everyday things and making them into something else. It's about having everyday things still stand for themselves, but creating a kind of context for them where they can be read as in, in a composition where they don't lose their integrity. Olmsted is making these trips through, through Texas in uh, the very end of 53 and in the beginning of 1854 and the other trips he makes for the New York Times that he turns into books to places such as the Mid-Atlantic as part of a process of figuring out what the heck he's going to do with his life. At this point, he's tried to do a couple things and hasn't really had the success he wanted. He's tried to be a farmer. He's tried to be a writer. He's tried to be a publisher, a magazine editor. And he was hoping these trips would, would not just be, you know, pay the bills, but would open up avenues to new ways of doing things in his life or ways of thinking that he might approach, might use to inform whatever he would do next in his life. Did any of this work that way for you? Was part of any of your interest having any of the same motivations that Olmsted had? Well, I, I think in the idea that I really didn't know so much what I would find, you know, I, I really wanted to be open to these experiences, you know, to not entirely overcode the trips with my own uh, sort of hopes and methodologies. At the same time, I'm, I'm conscious from the day I arrive in, in Houston that, you know, I have to materialize a project. So I have to be doing something, right? That there's going to be an exhibition at the end of this. And I'm not going to be able to come back to these places twice. Which is a hard, hard thought. As somebody who, who does research, that's a hard, hard thought. <laughs> and so you know you have to be productive. And so I'm trying to do that in all of the mediums I have access to. So, you know, I'm, I'm making watercolors. I'm taking photographs. I'm collecting things. I'm writing in my journal. And I don't know what the result will be yet, but I know if I don't have material, I'll have nothing to work with later on. So, you know, I, I'm definitely, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of struggling and I'm trying not to overcode the experience and anticipate what that something will be until I, until I go on later. You know, at the same time, you know, sometimes you have a day where nothing interesting happens. You know, another day that's a, almost a total flop, or you have a day where you don't collect anything because you've shown up in February, and plants aren't in flower, so you can't make a herbarium. There's no seeds to collect. You, you know, in a place like Galveston, there are very few places where you can actually get to the water. So collecting the kinds of things I often collect, garbage, <laughs> bits of bits of our landscape that have been enacted upon by nature 
you know, a, a bottle that's coated with barnacles, you know, for me, that's the most exciting kind of thing to collect, a thing that reverses the the logic of the artificial and the natural that we've inherited from the Wunderkammer. It's not the, it's not the human imposition on the natural, but rather the natural imposition on the human. I, I should add that we will have links to Olmsted's Texas book on, on the show page. You can download it for free from Open Library and PDF or Kindle or whatever format you, you might want. It's a hard read, uh, Olmsted's book. You know, it's, it's, it is, but it's, it's a pretty fun read, too. Yeah, especially if you are in the place. And what, what's, what's interesting is Olmsted doesn't come through Galveston, which is where most you know, white, white Texans and African-American Texans who are coming to Texas all come through Galveston. And in the architecture of Galveston, you really see the imprint of New Orleans, you know, where they're coming from, even though, of course, Galveston is challenged because, you know, almost once a decade, it's wiped off the map by a hurricane. But it's still that kind of sense of New Orleans and sense of the South is is much more present in Galveston than in other parts of Texas I've been to. There is a gallery in the show with spectacular wallpaper. There is a long history of artists and artist aesthetes being interested in design, broadly speaking, from the arts and crafts movement and, say, uh, William Morris to, to Andy Warhol and Pink Cows, right? So speaking of cows, your wallpaper. <laughs> yeah, my wallpaper has a long horn. That was, that was the that was the most difficult object um, because the team here felt like the original bull that I put on the wallpaper was not Texas enough. And so, you know, um, first they said, your cow is in a Texas cow. And I said, my cow is a bull, first of all. And this is certainly a Texas cow, but then we get into a long discussion and I, you know, as it's really clear in a project like this, you have to struggle to avoid cliche, right? You have to, you want to make a Texas wallpaper. You don't want that to be, to contain the 10 images that everyone is going to associate with Texas. At the same time, uh, you know, I have to defer to my collaborators and if they feel like we absolutely positively need a longhorn. Who am I to argue? Tell me why you wanted to do wallpaper. Why, why, why that was of interest or, and indeed, I, I, I imagine, fun. <laughs> well, I've done, I've done a fair number of wallpapers. I did a wallpaper for my exhibition at La Laboratoire in Cambridge that was a, a series of jellyfish images. And I've done one that was dedicated to the realm of the air, I did an extinction wallpaper for the Whitechapel uh, in London. And so in some way, one of the ways that Maggie Adler and I want to make this exhibition distinct from the rest of the Amoncarta, you know, the Amoncarta looks marvelous right now. It's just been rehung. It's been, it's been redesigned. The carpets have been taken out. The narrative has been tweaked in a much more sophisticated and complex way and you know but it's still quite classical in many ways so we want this exhibition to feel dramatically different when you come through so we have emphasized you know wall colors the first section is blue or green rather the second section is blue my section has a, a, a wallpaper so without constantly having to remind you through text that you're looking at something different that is a in in some way a complex but cohesive argument is is through the the wall treatments 
at the same time, I, I want it to be funny, right? I, I want it to, in some way, I want to use humor to attract people in so that they're not armored against the more critical aspects that they might find in the exhibition, right? I, I want to use humor as a way of, of disarming them and in some way shaking off their prejudices about what they might see when they think about contemporary art. And the wallpaper certainly is one thing that does that. And, and you know, and, and also in the same way that, you know, a, a simple example would be, you know, in the, in the center of the wallpaper, there's a, there's a rifle, right? So you would think the sort of cliche of the macho Texan rifle, but it's actually a BB gun. So anyone who looks at that and knows anything will recognize that it's a BB gun. So it's not this weapon of uh, eradication, but rather something that's a toy, a sort of gateway gun. When I mention the arts and crafts movement or Warhol's wallpaper, am I putting your wallpaper in the right lineage and context, or do you think of it in a different line? No, I, I think about it in, in, in that way. You know, I mean, I'm very, you know, careful with with the color. I'm very, you know, I, I want it to create a kind of mood. I want it to produce a setting. You know, the the we worked very hard to get the the color, the ochre color of the background of the wallpaper to, um, you know, resemble the um, soil specimens that are in the exhibition. You know, we wanted the red to be like the red of West Texas dirt. And we wanted the ochre to be like hill country soil. In closing, I want to pivot to uh, an exhibition, not at the Eamon Carter, to something you've done since we last talked, specifically to an exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art Toronto. You presented a dead tree, more specifically an autopsy of a dead tree, during which all of the life that the tree continued to support, even after the tree's death, was, was chronicled. You've long had an interest in forests, yes, but also in individual trees. Last time you were on the show, we talked about the Newcomb Vivarium at the Seattle Art Museum's Olympic Sculpture Park. There is a specific centuries-long art history around individual trees. There's the tree of life in Christian painting, the framing tree used by Claude and his centuries of adherence in their paintings, and of course, during the American Civil War, solid old individual trees, such as the grizzly giant in California's Mariposa Grove, which is a giant sequoia, became popular American symbols in poems and in art of the hoped-for endurance of the American Republican project, and indeed, of course, for the Union itself. This is all a far too long way of asking, is there a specific art history, one of these or another, uh, in which you think about your trees, your individual trees. Well, I, th I you know, I, I am really interested in in that in the use of the tree and and in the use of the tree as as you as you mentioned these kind of symbolic trees, even the tree of liberty, you know, the charter oak, but also um, you know these these trees that are are graphs, you know, family trees and taxonomic trees. Uh, cladistics trees that you find in taxonomies, the trees, the tree of life that that helps us understand evolutionary relationships, and also trees themselves. And and you know I'm extremely concerned at this weird moment where we have, uh, you know, this sort of attack on trees from 
invasive organisms that it is really going to change the composition of our forests. You know, it has already, of course. So, you know, the chestnut blight that was introduced, you know, dramatically changed the forests in eastern North America in, and Canada. So what we think about as as the composition of the tree, we know that, that chestnuts produce just a lot of fruit, right? And that fruit is food for a wide variety of animals that feed on it. Suddenly we have forests that where the chestnut disappears in 1900. And chestnuts were a significant part of that, part of a, a forest composition. So now we're facing a similar thing with a number of different organisms. The woolly adelgid that's affecting American hemlock trees, uh, eastern hemlocks and the uh, emerald ash borer. So the tree that I introduced into the galleries in Toronto and to the contemporary is is an ash tree that had died probably the year before and died because it was girdled by the emerald ash borer, you know, which is a, is an insect that was introduced accidentally and has spread widely and has been devastating to the ash tree across North America, but uh, especially in Canada and and in the Toronto area, people are seeing their uh, once healthy trees being cut down now. So why? You know, what is that? So this is a way of really kind of introducing into the gallery a kind of uh, opportunity for people to meet their meet their enemy in a sense. So we I worked with entomologists and we would dissect this tree over the course of the exhibition finding not just the emerald ash borer, but also dozens and dozens of other organisms that this tree supports, you know, who are not pernicious and who will have a hard time finding new homes now that ashes are, are gone. Is, is part of your hope in placing a tree and indeed scientists in an art museum or Kunsthall context that visitors will make the relationship between hundreds of years in trees, in art they like, and and what is happening in our contemporary world. Yeah, I hope so. And and I and I think, you know, it's 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 yeah, my interest is really thinking about, you know, the the ecology that really creates our identity in a sense. And also having a um a sort of perspective of how the kind of society that that we privileged with, you know, has unforeseen consequences for the world that produces our very way of, of thinking and seeing. And, and, you know, we are very tied to our landscapes and to, and to our identity. And those landscapes are now changing dramatically because of international trade and, and capitalism in a, in, a, in a sense. But it's something that it's really hard to pin down. It's hard to put a face on. And I think a project like this is a way of trying to talk about that. At the same time, you know, I'm also trying to tease out what are the differences between an artistic approach and a scientific approach. And having that be something that I sort of suspend an aspect of the, of, of being definitive of, and allow the viewer to kind of come to their conclusions based on the supposition that the exhibition is. I think especially for people who who know your work, there's wonderful rhymes between your trees in Seattle and this project in Toronto and, and the acquisition of entire trees as specimens, if you will, 
and the way Charles Wright exists in, in the Eamon Carter show and the way you exist with him in Fort Worth. Mark Dion, thanks very much. Thank you so much. It's a great opportunity. Thank you. His art captured the zeitgeist of Impressionist-era society, fashion, and politics. So why isn't he as famous as Monet or Degas? There are only four more days to see the new scholarship revealed in James Tiso, Fashion and Faith, closing this Sunday, February 9th, at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Navigate the winding path of Tiso's life as you explore the exhibition galleries, passing through his complicated friendship with Degas, a decade of expatriation in London, and a love affair with a tragic ending. Discover Tiso's spectacular world in James Tiso Fashion and Faith before it closes this Sunday. Head to legionofhonor.org to plan your visit. A new exhibition at the Getty Center showcases more than 200 never-before-seen treasures from the museum's extensive photographs collection. Unseen, 35 years of collecting photographs, spans the history of the medium from its earliest years to the present day, and highlights visual associations between works from different times and places, encouraging visitors to make fresh discoveries. Learn more about this must-see exhibition at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Norman Rockwell, American Freedom, the first comprehensive exhibition devoted to Norman Rockwell's iconic depictions of the four freedoms outlined by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. The presentation explores how Rockwell's 1943 paintings came to be embraced by millions of Americans, providing crucial aid to the war effort and taking their place among the most indelible images in the history of American art. Visit mfah.org slash Norman Rockwell for more. Welcome back. Next up, Nancy Lupo who joins me to discuss her work on the occasion of Nancy Lupo's Scripts for the Pageant at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. Curated by Anthony Edwards, the exhibition is on view at MCASD's downtown location through March 15th. Lupo's previous exhibition credits include the 2018 version of the Hammer's Made in L.A. Biennial and solo exhibitions at the Swiss Institute New York, LaxArt in Los Angeles, and the Visual Arts Center at the University of Texas. Nancy Lupo, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Your installation at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego includes, among other things, a series of 16 cast aluminum benches. They're various colors, and they're arranged in, for shorthand purposes, to start um, an oval that spans four galleries. So this is not the first time you've used benches in your work, of course, and I want to start there. Different benches were prominent in work you made for the Hammer Museum's Made in L.A. show two years ago. And in an exhibition, for example, that you had uh, that same year in 2018 at Antenna Space in Shanghai. So benches everywhere. Why benches? Yeah, I've actually been working with and thinking about park benches for a long time. Um, and they I started to kind of use them for my first exhibition in New York in 2015, wall space, I produce my first sort of three-quarter scale replica of this park bench that was in this park right near where I live in Hollywood. And I would sort of drive by this 
bench every day. It was like a park full of these sort of cast concrete benches. And they were like these kind of mid-century modern, like very smooth and kind of beautiful and sexy. And I would drive by it all the time and sort of think about think about these benches. And the, there was a couple of different forms of them, but the one that I reproduced and that sort of stood out to me was a tete-a-tete, like the kind of French bench where it's like a kind of romantic form where you could sort of like be sitting with your back sort of to somebody, but then you could like turn and, and gaze at each other. And I was thinking about what that bench sort of meant in a certain kind of space. But then, of course, as a park bench, you know, it's like an anti-homeless bench. So I was just kind of thinking about the sort of like seductiveness or prettiness or cuteness or something of these forms. And then like they're kind of underlying sort of brutality or the kind of ways that they were also regulating space, public space. And so in the context of that exhibition, I was contrasting it against this other like form that I had been noticing, which was called a, a bumbo baby seat. There was a lot of people sort of having children around me and they were all kind of like exchanging this thing as a gift. And it was sort of like this foam rubber kind of almost like a shell for a baby and you would sit your baby into this shell sort of before its kind of bones and muscles were totally working so that it could kind of sit up right it also had this like similar form just like on a formal level like the kind of like curves and the smoothness and and like the way that you're kind of attracted to it like a, on a affective sort of sensual level and so the exhibition was like pairing sculptures that I had made using that sort of baby seat as a starting point and contrasting it with this park bench that you could sit in so that was the first one and then in a way like every kind of exhibition that I've made I've included as functional seating a park bench in different configurations and the park benches are always intended to be that you can use them that you could sit on them so also hoping to like encourage a sort of like durational engagement with the space with the other sort of objects or sculptures that I've brought into the space and then I kind of I wasn't thinking about it initially but at a certain point I started to understand that they were produced one per year and they were becoming like these kind of markers of time in this way, like almost kind of like a, like a memorial or like a sort of picture frame or a body frame. And so at the hammer, the exhibition that you were talking about having seen, that was kind of a collection to date of all of the sort of park benches that I had produced. And shortly after that, I started conceiving, conceiving of open mouth. And that was sort of, in a way, the most, like the, the kind of most extrapolated version for the year 2019. And that bench was a recreation of a bench that I had noticed at the Termini train station in Rome, which has that really particular kind of end form that I had never seen before, which actually looks like a tombstone. Or I was thinking if you sort of play with scale, like a kind of enlarged kind of cartoonish tooth, which is how the oval shape or open mouth form came about.
You've also played with the scale of benches. In, in, in Open Mouth in San Diego, the benches are three-quarters scale from, from the Italian standard, if you will. But in Shanghai, the benches were kind of deconstructed, if that's the right word, and, and much smaller. What about scaling benches down? Um, what ideas does that access for you? For me, like I think that um, like a model, right, like a kind of architectural model or any kind of model is sort of, it's like an idea. So it's something that kind of resides like in your, in your brain, in your head. It's like a very kind of like heady, heady experience, like a, an idea experience. And then when you have something that is functional and it's full scale, then it kind of disappears inside of its use. And so I feel like three-quarter scale is somewhere in between being like an actual thing and an idea. And then it kind of, I think if you're living in an adult body, then you have a different association with it also that might evoke childhood or might evoke play or sort of maybe make you feel uncomfortable or be kind of disarming in a certain sense. So the sort of yearly index of benches, at least thus far, there's always one that's like at this three-quarter scale. And what was going on in Shanghai is I was trying to kind of play this game or write this prayer in a certain sense where there was one of these bench, what I ended up calling ribs, which are this element that looks like a treble clef in a way, or like a cursive letter A upside down or something, but then also kind of like a a rib of a skeleton. And so I was sort of trying to use that element to kind of like reconstruct time or reconstruct like ideas around memory, like as they get kind of like embedded in an object and especially an object like a park bench where there's so much friction that like when you sit on a park bench, you know, there's like layers and layers of just like residual energy or, I mean, in a way it's kind of literal, like this kind of like scraping or sometimes, you know, like layers and layers and layers and layers of paint or something that'll kind of like subtly distort like the surface of something. It's very, it's like a very kind of mute thing that those like layers and layers and layers, but I think it's something that you can really access also like on a, on like a kind of gut level or on like a, I don't know, some kind of quasi spiritual level or something. So if the MCA San Diego installation could be seen from above, you know, if we were to hover in the air like a drone, it would be immediately evident that the benches uh, installed there would resemble an open mouth, a, a double catenary curve in a broad oval. So hence, hence the title of the show. Mouths, teeth, that made in L.A. installation also included a reference to the mouth and to teeth as represented or at least referred to by the 32 doorknob-sized bronze objects that you made that were infor- informed by Fritz Koenig's sculpture, The Sphere, that was installed between the two World Trade Center towers in New York. And in another installation, this one at the Swiss Institute in 2016, you described the presentation of your parent and parroting sculpture as being a form that recalled a human jaw. So why is the mouth, jaw, teeth uh, a site uh, of interest? You know, there's something about, you know, the mouth as this kind of threshold between the interior and the exterior of your body. 
um, and teeth being durable elements of the human body, you know, they're like stronger than bones. If there's like a really horrible plane crash or something, people are identified by their by their dental records. It's like a very charged location and also like a very kind of like charged imaginary. And I think in 2016, um, with Parent and Parroting, I was thinking a lot about, you know, the relationship of desire and kind of aspiration in relationship to consumer objects and this kind of really intense range of of things that were like in, in these different kind of s- different states of being sort of like new or used or I guess I was like having an experience like I am a lot sort of walking around Los Angeles, which isn't something that Los Angeles is really built for. So you find yourself in these like different kinds of scenarios. Like I feel like there's all this sort of fallout space in LA or, or just like places that like aren't really necessarily seen like in the normal picture of how you're supposed to see LA like from your car or something so I was like really kind of fascinated with these sort of accumulations of stuff that were kind of compiling outside and around of my and outside around my studio and just sort of like those objects and the kind of like range of things that you'd see and then if you're inside of a store you know, and like seeing like recurrent versions of these objects and then, you know, in your home or in your studio and how these objects are like shifting and and changing sort of meaning and value in these different, in these different spaces. So switching from forms to materials, sometimes your materials echo the materials of the things you're presenting. You know, the cast aluminum benches at MCASD are made from the same stuff benches are often made out of all over the world. But often you use less fabricated, if you will, everyday objects in ways that call our attention to their texture, their smell, their form, their color, all of those things at once. So to take parent and parroting again, it featured oranges and chocolate oranges and orange shapes and forms recalling shelving with orange peels. So, you know, things you could see and smell and have and things that prompt recollections. And it's all kind of punny. So maybe taking that piece as a jumping off point, what about punning and making relationships between those things works for you? I guess because I think there's something about the way that you can like start to unfold something and like make it actually less known and kind of more confusing in a way by presenting things that aren't it, but are adjacent to it or proposed to be it. You can kind of like have this new experience with something that you really think that you know, or you really don't actually think about at all or sort of consider anymore it's like it's kind of destabilizes your understanding of a thing that you think that you know and so i think with parent and parroting i mean it's it's like it started very slowly kind of thinking about that shelf it started with this sort of shelf form which is made to go underneath of a sink and but i didn't know that at first you know so i was just sort of looking at this 
shelf for a long time being like, what is this thing and why would a thing in this form exist? It also kind of like looked like a tooth or had this sort of like orthodontic kind of jaw formation to it. And later, you know, as like things started getting sort of embedded into the structure, I came to kind of oranges. It was like citrus season in L.A. And and I was just very attuned to like this universe of sort of seeing oranges everywhere. And an orange is an orange is an orange all the way through is something that. Uh, this woman, Jessica Stockholder, I studied with, always pointed out about oranges, which I thought was beautiful. Yeah. And so it's like they became this kind of like symbol for sort of religious Christmas sort of like symbol and symbol of exchange. It was like the first sort of gift. And there was other things I was reading about how people were trying to do these wrappers that were sort of like thinking about like ways of genetically modifying orange peels so that you could like have kind of like biodegradable peel to everything. So I was thinking a lot about that. And then there's these like chocolate oranges that have this sort of like foil covered orange peel thing. And in that sculpture, there's these cast aluminum dog bowls that were like sort of from this dog pound that got cast against wood. So they had this like wood grain texture in them. So it was like kind of all of these like confused surfaces or propositions about what a thing was or how you could understand it from just looking at it or or not. The last pieces I'd like to ask you about are a series of 2018-ish works that recall paper fortune tellers or, or what were called when I was in elementary school many moons ago, uh, cootie catchers. Their titles in in, in, in in your work are, are Teller, Reteller, I, You, and Untitled. Uh, th- these are works made from uh, El- Elmer's glue, basswood, toilet paper, and indeed um, three specific toilet papers, if you will, Angel Soft Pretty Prints, Northern Soft Prints, and Family Scott Floral, as well as Pencil. Totally different form than, than the forms we've been talking about. Kind of um, more more Gobert-esque or early Via Selman-ish than, than really anything we've been talking about, too. What about that paper fortune teller or cootie catcher form appealed to you? It's so funny because basically everyone who's seen those sculptures has had that same reference point for them. And it actually didn't start there at all. I should let me let me I should note that these are are not the same size as <laughs> as paper fortune tellers. You know, they're like they're like, you know, eight feet tall or something. I'm sorry, a little smaller than that, but maybe five feet tall. So that form came about actually, um, it was a model for for again, open mouth for these farmers market tents that I was originally wanting to have placed, you know, over the open mouth as it would exist in Pershing Square. Pershing Square is a whole city block sized square in downtown Los Angeles. Yes, where Open Mouth was on exhibition before it is where it is now in San Diego. And yeah, so I I I decided eventually to not include the farmers market tents as a part of the the installation, but I had the model in my studio and then I had this like floral toilet paper that I had used as a part of a sculpture 
called So Soft and So Delicious, where I was kind of thinking about the erotics of toilet paper and had amassed this collection of toilet paper. And this that, that was like the only toilet paper that I could really find, you know, on my journey of looking that was kind of print floral printed. So, and it was going out of stock. So I bought a lot of it and had a lot of it. And then I just started to kind of paper mache it over this form of all of these farmers market tents. And I just sort of kept going with it for months and then became kind of interested in floral toilet paper, which was sort of a thing and is not so much of a thing anymore, but is still kind of a thing in Europe. So I was looking around for different floral toilet papers and then kind of separating them out by ply. So they were very, very thin. And the sculpture becomes like this kind of psychedelic floral pattern. You know, it's funny with the te- with the fortune teller thing, because I really only started seeing that after people were pointing it out. But the, the numbers on it, it's like it configures into a phone number that is a, a kind of work. And I call it an ongoing work that I've been working with for a while, which is like it's called Hold the Phone. And it's just the phone number 310-499-0549. And it's kind of updated periodically in relationship to like different exhibitions or I don't know if there's some sort of idea that comes up that feels like it should just be circulating. Then I'll kind of I'll I'll make a recording and, and, and upload it to this telephone number. So the the phone numbers in that series of works at Young Cops were there, there was that number, which is the local L.A. number, and then there was another teller that was um, a local number for Cologne. And for that exhibition, it was playing, the, the local L.A. number was playing a recording of the bells at Pershing Square, and the one from Cologne was playing these church bells from across the street. And then the teller with I was my telephone number. And then the t- uh, teller for you untitled was just kind of blocked out uh, and there wasn't actually a number on it. So teller and reteller aren't references to fortune tellers. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of thinking about the desire to be told or something, you know, like like wanting an answer, you know, like looking for someone to kind of like tell you, which could be anything. It could be a kind of just a moment of like, you know, like personal sort of awakening or, you know, religious or, you know, commercial or familial or romantic. Nancy Lupo, thanks so much. Thank you. 